So we are venturing into a couple of notoriously difficult verses in our study. Verse 19 is the difficult one, if you didn't catch it when Logan just read it, which states that Jesus went and made proclamation to spirits now in prison. So tonight we'll cover that. Next week we're going to be looking at, uh, in verse 21, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, which is an interesting phrase, not a phrase you get in the New Testament except for right there. So um, tonight we're going to be going from one of the clearest verses and most beautiful verses about the gospel, verse 18, right into one of the most confusing verses in all of the Bible, verse 19. And just to give you an idea of how difficult verse 19 is, I'm going to give you three quotes. This one's from Martin Luther. He says, this is a strange text, which starting right there, it's like, yeah, okay, uh uh-huh. And certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. And Martin Luther said, remember, this is the guy who was really opinionated about lots of stuff. He said, I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. (laughs) That means we have a great chance. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, this passage is one of the most difficult portions of the New Testament. Good and godly interpreters have wrestled with these verses, debated and disagreed, and they have not always left behind a great deal of help. And I. Howard Marshall says, it appears to speak a language far removed from modern people. (laughs) So, that's where we're headed. But before we get to verse 19, let's dwell on verses 17 and 18 for a while. You see the uh, theme of the lesson tonight, that our suffering, our suffering unjustly. So when we suffer unjustly, that further conforms us to Christ in our earthly lives. And that's really clear in those first couple of verses that we'll look at this evening, when Peter says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, makes that connection with with Christ. So suffering for doing what is right is better than suffering because of our disobedience. Why is that so? might seem like an obvious question, but let's make sure that we're uh, thinking through this rightly. Why is it better to suffer for what is right than for what is wrong? Okay, yeah. So it's uh, just a part of the way the world works, right? That there's authority in the world, and if you're doing something wrong and the authority punishes you, disciplines you, whatever it may be, Well, that's just the way it is. That's the way God set it up. What's exceptional about that? What else? Why is it better to suffer for what is right than for what is for doing something wrong? Okay, yeah. So one of the uh, aspects, and I think this is a major theme, not just in this. Uh, text, but in the whole letter of First Peter, is that you recognize that you're on God's side more. <laughs> There's a recognition of a belonging to God more when you're suffering for doing what is right. Okay, there's a, a more tangible, real sense of being one of God's children. Some other thoughts that I <clears throat> had written down, the Christian conscience is kept good. Remember last week we talked about the conscience? Um, keep your conscience good, <laughs> and uh, suffering for what is right certainly falls into that category. It's verse 16, keep a good conscience. 
So you're doing what is right. If you're doing what is wrong, what's the state of your conscience? Well, it's going to be guilty, right? You're going to feel, feel that guilt. What about the Christian witness? How does this affect the Christian witness one way or the other? Say it. What, what, how does this affect the Christian witness? Okay, good. So if you suffer for what is right, doing what is right, it's showing your commitment to Christ. And it's living out your faith. What about if you suffer for doing what is wrong? What does that do to the Christian witness? Doesn't help it, right? <laughs> we could say that. Doesn't help it. So it's better in that sense, too. It's better for your uh, witness to, testament to, the gospel itself. And the Christian witness is not only maintained, but it's strengthened. As you patiently suffer unjustly for doing what is right, not only does your witness uh, stay maintained, not only does the gospel's reputation stay maintained, but it's, it's strengthened through all of that. Okay? And who's in control of if you suffer for doing what is right, according to verse 17? It's the will of God, isn't it? It is the will of God whether you should suffer for doing what is right or not. And can you think of a, a place in the New Testament where we are informed of God's sovereignty over suffering? There's not one right answer to this. There is one passage we're going to turn to, but <laughs> there's not one right answer. Okay. Yeah, going back to what we looked at last week or the week before maybe, yeah. About uh, blessed are you if you're persecuted for my name's sake. Yeah. Okay, what does it say? Okay, yeah. So you might be in a situation where you lay down your life for the cause of love, right? And God's in control of that. What about in Paul's life? Did Paul suffer? You could look at Philippians 4, you could look at 2 Corinthians 11, where he's listing off, you know, I've, I've learned to be content with little and with much, uh, with, you know, being poor, being rich. 2 Corinthians 11, he lists off all the times he was, you know, shipwrecked and beaten and all that. Who's in control of all that? Well, God's in control. And here's a real clear one that is really at the heart of, I believe, what Peter's instructing us. Acts 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter himself preaching at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 22. Would someone read? It's a little bit of a longer portion, but Acts, 22, or Acts 2, verses 22 to 33. 22 to 33. Who can read that for us? Acts 2, 22 to 33. Who's got it? Go ahead, Mike. All right. So there's a lot there, and some of it will correlate to verse, verses 19 and 20 that we'll look at later in 1 Peter 3. But look at verse 23. Acts 2, verse 23. This is Peter preaching, remember. Who was in charge of what Christ went through? That's right. He was delivered up according to not the plan of man that thwarted God's plan. He wasn't delivered up because, well, God sent His Son and 
Just let the chips fall where they may. That wasn't it. It wasn't plan B. No, that's not, not it. God sent His Son, and there was in view the entire time the cross, that this would happen. This, this was the predetermined plan according to the foreknowledge of God. And so when you think of all the examples that there could be of suffering in the world, because you know, Peter here is making the, the statement in our text tonight that God's will is what determines if you suffer unjustly uh, for doing righteousness. When you th- consider those, you might think, well, really, in that situation, is God really willing it that to happen? Because it just seems like so painful, right? Again, because it's in the news, think of our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and what they're going through. Does God really will that they would suffer unjustly for doing what is right? Well, yeah, if you look at the life of Christ, has there ever been anyone who was more undeserving of Persecution? Well, no, Jesus didn't deserve any persecution. He was perfect in all that He did. He was absolutely perfect, and yet it was God's will that He would suffer. And so we look at the life of Christ and say, well, okay, if if that was the predetermined plan of God for that to happen to Him, well, then every other case kind of pales in comparison to that, doesn't it? So Peter says to us that it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Now, of course, there is emphasis here on doing what is right. It's God's will that we do what is right, that we don't fight fire with fire, that we don't return insult for insult or evil for evil. That's what Peter's been walking us through. That is the focus here. But it's not just God's will that we do what is right. When we do what is right and suffer, that's also God's will that that happened. Okay? So there's a lot to see uh, from there, especially, go back to our passage, 1 Peter 3, especially in verse 18, where we get a very succinct gospel picture, but it's full of so much good stuff. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So I've highlighted five statements from that text. He died for our sins. He was put to death in the flesh once for all. That's an interesting statement that's in there. The just for the unjust and to bring us to God. So let's think through these statements. First, that He died for our sins. The purpose of Christ's death, of course, was to deal with sin. Why did Christ die? Well, it was dealing with sin. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't purposeless. It was the most intentional and purposeful death there's ever been, that He would die to deal with sin. Um, and it says, furthermore, Peter says, that he was put to death in the flesh. This is just as God required it in the law, isn't it? What did the law say about how sins were to be taken care of in Israel? Think back through the Torah, the law. What was, what was it that Jews had to do to take care of their sin? Yeah. Right, and it wasn't just make an animal bleed, was it? It was to have an animal die in the stead of the sinner. And so with Christ, he had to be put to death. The purpose of his death was to deal with sin. He was put to death in the flesh. But he was made alive in the Spirit. That's at the end of the verse. What does that mean? Hmm. 
made alive in the Spirit. Okay. Okay, resurrection is offered as a, as a possible option. Other, other options to throw out there? Also, do any of you have a capital S for spirit on yours? Because that is a debate as whether that should be... NIV does. Okay, right, the NIV. So what would that mean in the NIV uh, or other versions? Okay, the Holy Spirit quickened them somehow. There would be an emphasis on that. Melissa? Okay. So, um, okay, yeah, go ahead, Mandy. No, you're good. Yeah, um, I don't think it's talking about that. And that's going in, going down that road is not a road I'm prepared to go down this evening. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I don't think it's that. And I also don't think it's his resurrection. Um, because then you have to ask, well, did Christ cease to be after his death and until his resurrection? And that, the answer to that is obviously no. He was still alive, even though he died, right? So uh, the way I understand this, and there's a lot of this passage that you just have to hold with an open hand because Peter's saying stuff here that it's just like, well, okay, I think it might mean this, I think it might mean that, not 100% sure. But here, here's what I'm thinking is that he was made alive, he was made alive in the Spirit, his soul was made alive, okay? So as Jesus died... Um, well, let's back up. When Jesus came to earth, he took on human flesh. He was not 50% human, 50% God, right? Got to maintain 100% human, added to his 100% divinity, which he's had for all eternity. When he died on the cross, did anything happen to his divine nature? No, not at all. But his flesh, of course, was put to death. And so, um, now, <laughs> this could really get us into a, a really a confusing place, so I need to be careful about how far I go down these roads. As human beings, are we 100% material, and that's it? No. Right. Okay? So, when your body dies, do you cease to be? Well, no. You are still alive, aren't you? Uh, you are alive in a spiritual realm right? We are immaterial and material. And so, um, I believe that what this is saying <laughs> is that when he died, he was put to death in the flesh, meaning just as when we die, our flesh ceases to be. The body stops breathing, right? But in the spiritual realm, he's still living, okay? Um, I think that's the safest interpretation, but I also think that it's the natural reading of what Peter's saying, though it is difficult. I have to admit that a lot of this is difficult. James? Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and we have to admit this is this is in the realm of mystery for us too. As far as um, was Jesus omnipresent when he walked the earth? Okay. So you start going down that road, and you have to say at the end of the day, well, that's kind of mysterious, right? Did is that one of the attributes that he emptied himself of in his incarnation. People debate that, okay? Whether he was uh, in heaven while he was on earth or if he was just on earth for that time, okay? 
They debate that. And Scripture doesn't give us a lot of indication, right? So uh, we can't say definitively one way or the other. And yeah, the, the made aspect of that, made alive in the Spirit, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. So, Logan. Yes, and so most, yeah, well, the way most people interpret that verse, which I haven't studied that one yet, I'm just studying these as we go, but um, the way that one is mostly understood as far as I know now is that when he says, this is chapter 4, verse 6, if you guys missed what he said, the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. He's not saying it was preached to dead people but it was preached to people who were living at the time they heard it, but now they're dead. No, that they're, they're now physically dead. But at the time that they heard the gospel, they weren't dead. But a couple weeks, we'll hit that verse and we'll wrestle with it. Jerry, did you have a thought too? Well, he never left his deity. He yielded his spirit, right. Yeah. Well, but he didn't return to the right hand of the Father until after his ascension, right? Because he, he, he resurrected and then ascended into heaven to the right hand of God. And so what we're entering into in this passage is what happened between cross and resurrection, which is a question that a lot of people have, and this is one of the passages you can go to say, okay, this stuff was going on, and we still don't have a lot of answers. <laughs> so uh, it talks about it, but it's hard to understand. So, Dean? Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, tough. Yeah, because it's like, well, you got to, when you consider the implications of that, you just kind of have to just say, okay, that's pretty mysterious, and we can't nail a lot of stuff down on that. Um, but we do know this, he never ceased to be, right? There was never a time when the Trinity became a binity, <laughs> where there were two persons. Um, there was never a time when the Son of God ceased to be. Um, the Son of God sacrificed his humanity that he took on. That's what he sacrificed on the cross, was his humanity, his human life. He didn't cease to be the Son of God. And um, this is, of course, seen by his resurrection. He rose from the dead. He never ceased to be, but his body was brought back to life three days later. And <clears throat> let's try to keep, got to keep things moving. We haven't even gotten to the hard one yet. Uh, once for all, let's talk about that phrase, once for all. So we've covered, uh, covered these two. So kind of. <laughs> I'm going to be generous to myself and say we covered them. Once for all. <clears throat> what does he mean with, this, with the phrase once for all in verse 18? He died for our sins once for all. Good. Good. What book of the Bible really elaborates on this? Takes major portions of the book to talk about he's the final sacrifice. Book of Hebrews. Yeah, you start reading through Hebrews, especially when you get to chapters 9 and 10. Spends a lot of time talking about how Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. There's no other atoning work that needs to be done ever again. What Jesus did in sacrifice was once for all time, one act for all. 
And this differs from the Old Testament law. So I was saying how he had to die based on Old Testament law. God required that there would be a life in place of a life. And yet they had to do it year after year, didn't they? And this is really what Hebrews gets into. Look, they're going back year by year because the blood of goats and bulls doesn't truly once for all take away sin. But the Son of God, when He offered Himself through the eternal Spirit, well, once for all. You don't have to re-sacrifice ever again. It was final. It's absolutely final. And He was the just for the unjust. The just in the place of the unjust. Uh, Now, as I'm sure you just understand, but just to make clear, just is in the singular and unjust is in the plural. (laughs) He, the just one, because out of all the people who have ever lived, how many could be called the just one? Well, just one, right? (laughs) Just one could be called the just one. And yet we are all the unjust. And this is, of course, the paradox that Peter is drawing on suffering for doing what is right. Jesus only did what was right always. Only. That's all He did was what was right. And yet He suffered, and He did so for the sake of the unjust. He was the righteous one. And we do well to recognize that, yeah, the unjust means us. That includes us. We are the unjust ones. Okay? So that, here's the purpose of why Jesus did did this, so that He might bring us to God, is what it says. He might bring us to God. So this implies what about the unjust? Us. What does that imply? That Jesus did this to bring us to God, that implies that what? We can't do it on our own? Yeah, I was going to say, and even backing up one step before that, right. We're, we're separated, right? We're separated and we can't fix it. We are far from God and we can't bring ourselves near. There's a, an infinite chasm that exists between the creation and the Creator, because of our sin, because we are unjust. And He's just, and so how could the unjust ever make themselves united to the just? Well, we can't. Therefore, the just came to us. He took on flesh and He died in our place for our sins so that we might be brought near to God. That we would be brought to God. Without His sacrifice, we are not reconciled. And God is still far off from those who have rejected the sacrifice of Christ. You can't be brought near to God if you are still rejecting the sacrifice of Christ. The only way to be brought near to God is if you've been united by faith to Jesus Christ. So, thoughts on 17 and 18 that are simple and easy to answer. I know. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Okay. All right. Well, now Peter gives us a very confusing side note. It's like the chapter could have ended there and Peter would have been great. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote more. And uh, it's our job to look at these and see what God has to say to us. Now, to demonstrate how confusing this is. Look at verse 19 in your Bible. If you have a Bible with cross-references, does verse 19 offer you any cross-references to any other passage? (laughs) No from Jim. 
I got, it's a no from me, no from Jen, no, nope, no from James. Okay. Okay, that doesn't help. <laughs> I tried that. <laughs> okay. All right, so to give you an idea, this verse stands alone. What just, if you look at just this verse, the narrative, the historical point, the event that Peter's describing in this verse really kind of stands alone. Now, there are a couple places we're going to look at, but what he's describing here, he's just describing it as though his audience has an understanding of what is being said. And uh, boy, it's tough. It's a tough one. So here are the questions that we need to answer. Let me read it again, and then we'll walk through those questions. Verse 19, when it says, Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, it says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. So here are the questions we need to answer. When did he go? The first question is a time question. When did he go? Because it says he went. Well, when did he go? Secondly, who are these spirits that are now in prison? It's a legitimate question, right? Where are these spirits? It says in prison, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean the local jailhouse. So where? Where are they in prison? What was the proclamation? It says that Jesus made a proclamation to them. It says that uh, he made proclamation, is all it says in the New American Standard. Made proclamation. Well, what, what was that proclamation? And what was its effect? So he makes this proclamation, but then what? I mean, what, did that have any effect at all? These are spirits in prison. They were di- formerly disobedient. All right. So you can see in that one verse, we have five questions. And I'm assuming if I gave you all a sheet with these questions on it and said, okay, write out your answer you would probably feel a little at least uncomfortable or unconfident answering the question. And that's good. You probably should feel that way. Um, it's, I don't think you should walk away from this verse tonight feeling super confident about what you believe about this verse. Very rarely will I say that, all right? But this is one of those cases where it's just like we don't have a lot of confidence because this is a unique verse. It's a single verse that's unique. Let me give you five main views. <laughs> five. Five main views. We have five questions and five main views. This is adapted from Wayne Grudem's listing in his commentary. In the back of Wayne Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter, he has about 40 pages to answering these questions from verse 19. I wasn't convinced of his position. His is view number one I'm about to read to you. But he spends 40 pages on it if you're just really looking to get into verse 19 and try to figure out what it means. I think that's a lot of time to spend on a verse like this, but that's what he did, okay? Well, here's number one. This, like I said, this is the view that he holds, and you'll find it some in church history. It's the only view that says the when question is answered by looking back to when Noah was building the ark. He believes that when Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit was in Noah, preaching repentance and righteousness through Noah, to the unbelievers who were on the earth then, but they're now people who are in hell. So, he believes that this, and all the other views have to do with after Christ died, Christ did this. This is the only view that goes all the way back, for you, this way, backwards, goes all the way back to the time of Noah, because Peter brings up Noah in the passage, which is interesting, and uh, the way Grudem interprets this and others, it's not just Grudem, 
It's like, okay, when Noah was building the ark, Jesus was in Noah, the Spirit of Christ was in Noah, preaching repentance to the people of Noah's day. And at that time, of course, they were on the earth, but now they are in prison in hell. Okay, so that's view number one. You can respond audibly with grunts or something if you want to each one of these. It'll be our straw poll. <laughs> okay, view number two, two of five. <laughs> After Christ died, he went and preached to people in Hades, offering them a second chance of salvation. Okay, so some of you are tracking for the first two-thirds of that, and then I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, so we can pretty well scratch that one off the list, all right, that he went to Hades and offered a second chance of salvation. Third main view, and there are all kinds of like adapt, adaptations of each one of these views, but okay, third view. After Christ died, he went and preached to people in Hades, okay, same as the last one so far, proclaiming to them that he had triumphed over them and their condemnation was final. So, and it could be, you could substitute angels in there for people, not just uh, people, but fallen angels, demons. That, that's who the spirits are. View number four. After Christ died, he proclaimed release to people who had repented just before they died in the flood and led them out of their imprisonment to heaven. So, again, drawing on the Peter mentions Noah. So during the time of Noah, was there anybody who died in the flood who had faith before they died? Some people would say, oh, yeah, that's reasonable. And so what Peter's saying is after Christ died, he went to those people, he proclaimed the gospel to them and led them out of their imprisonment and death. View number five, after Christ died, he traveled to Hades and proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned, the ones who, Jim, cover your ears, Married human women before the flood and uh, reproduced with them. Okay. So, that's, that's for people who believe the Nephilim were offspring of angels and humans, which I think is really wacky. But uh, that's that view. Okay? So, those are the five main views. Are you satisfied with any of those five? <laughs> that's, I, I'm really not. Uh, but, again, it's just a difficult passage. So, let's see what we can see in Scripture here. And uh, let's start in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and let's focus on a couple of passages that tell us about what Christ was doing after He died and before He rose again, or after He died and before He went to heaven. Let's do Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Who would read 7 to 10 for us? Okay. What do we learn about what Christ did between His death and at least His ascension? Um, what, what did He do according to this passage? What are some things we could pick out? He descended. To the lower parts of the earth is what it says, okay? Descended into the lower parts of the earth. What else? Okay, he came out, okay? He didn't stay there, good. 
What about that Old Testament quote there from, I think it's what, Psalm 68? Yes, he led a host of captives. That's interesting. So there were people who were captives that he led. Okay, got those things in your head? Colossians 2. (laughs) Turn over to Colossians 2 with me. Just a couple books ahead. Colossians chapter 2. And let's look at verses 13 to 15. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Again, looking to see what Jesus did, the activity of Christ after his death. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. Who's got that? Go ahead, Jerry. Yeah, 13 to 15. All right, that one's a little more complex, but focusing on verse 15, what did Christ do after his death? All right, there was a public display or open shame of rulers and authorities. Now, it seems pretty obvious that the rulers and authorities being spoken of here are in the spiritual realm, right? We don't have any indication that Christ... Uh, made a public display of earthly rulers and earthly authorities um, in any sense. There was no public display of that. But uh, over the angelic realm, he made a public display of of them, having triumphed over them, it says, having triumphed over them. So, um, those are a couple of our main passages in addition to 1 Peter about what Jesus did after his death. Did that clear everything up for you? Do what? Oh. Well, probably because most Christian publishers are afraid to hint at any sort of interpretation of that. Yeah. Because if they were to cross-reference it, it's basically saying, okay, look, Peter's talking about this event. Flip over there and look. But I don't think any Christian publisher is confident enough to say, yeah, Peter's got the same thing in mind. So, yeah. Anyway, um, it's a toughie. It's a tough one. So let me walk you through kind of where I am in understanding this and let you challenge me or whatever you want to do, okay? So answering the questions one by one, when did he go? So I, I don't think, uh, I have a hard time buying into the, this is the spirit of Christ in Noah view. I don't see that happening. I don't think I could get there with the text uh, that, Jesus, that this is saying Jesus was in Noah preaching repentance. So I think this is after Christ died, but before he resurrected. So to answer that question, that's where I am. When did he go and do this? And notice that it does say in uh, verse 19, he went. So there was an actual going to an actual place. He went. Uh, I think this is between his death and his resurrection. Who who are or who were the spirits? Well, um, that's a tough one, but I believe it's in reference to demons, potentially people. But I'm seeing it as demons for the moment. A uh, couple reasons for that that I'll get to here in a moment. So I think that he's uh, preaching to, talking about spirits, angelic beings who are fallen. Okay? Where are they located? Where's prison? Where's the prison? Uh, kind of a tough one <laughs> to answer that. Uh, say that again, Joseph. Well, 
you could potentially say that, except demons aren't confined to Hades, right? Demons are active on the face of the earth. Uh, demons are active around us. Angels and demons are active around us. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So um, you got that going on. So I'm going to say a kind of a vague <laughs> answer. Uh, the realm of Hades, I don't know. The, the realm of Hades is what he, uh, where he went, is where these spirits are located. Um, potentially it means he went to Hades, uh, not like suffering in hell. We don't believe Jesus suffered in hell. There's no reason to believe that. P- potentially he somehow across the gulf that's described in Luke 16 between Abraham's bosom and Hades. There was a proclamation made, I, but boy, saying where, that's, that's really tough. Um, what was the proclamation? Definitely don't believe that he was offering anybody he was preaching to a change of state. So that whole view of second chance of salvation, yeah, nix that one. Uh, angels, of course, fallen angels, demons, angels themselves who are good angels can't be saved. Salvation isn't for angels. And so, uh, preaching, proclaiming something to demons wouldn't be offering them salvation. So, I believe the content of his proclamation was a triumph. He was proclaiming to the demonic realm, to the uh, realm of demons, even Satan himself, that their doom is sealed, that their fate is sealed, that he is sovereign Lord who has defeated death who's defeated sin. And uh, what was its effect? I, I guess that, that would, I kind of answered that question. It was essentially just letting them know that their fate is sealed, that he was letting them know that he did it because he's God and he's in control. Rex. Yeah, the grave. Right, which, yeah, that's what I would say, that when he led captive, a host of captives, that makes sense to me, yep. So the wicked uh, ruler of the rich man is still there, still there today. Yeah, because Hades has not yet been thrown into the lake of fire. Right. Yep. And you've got the demons and the fallen angels and stuff, but they're still wherever Yeah, Right. So, which, which category was he preaching to? Because if you eliminate the uh, Grudem view about this is talking about a past event uh, all the way back to Noah, and you say, okay, this happened after he died, I, it's, this is a question you should ask later on, because you, first you deal with the text, but eventually you have to deal with the philosophical question of why would he preach to that group? Why would he preach to that group? Why would he be proclaiming anything to that group? And a lot of times we won't get answers to why questions, but sometimes that can help us I don't know, kind of at least settle in our own spirit about what we personally believe and hold it with an open hand. Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, because from... Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because from God's perspective, obviously God knowing all things, the future is not future to Him. He's always known he's the victor, right? <laughs> but from a demon's perspective, uh, who know that God is one, they know that God is not W-O-N, but O-N-E, one. They know that God is one, and they shudder. They don't know the future, and 
dumb little spirit beings think they might have victory over our king. And he, it would make sense, yeah, that he would proclaim to them. Here are a few other reasons. Let me just give you a few other reasons why I believe it's angels while we're on that point. Uh, one, the word that's used here is the word for, our regular word for spirit in the New Testament. So when it says the spirit's now in prison, that's the same word like for Holy Spirit, pneuma, okay? Very, well, I shouldn't say rarely, but in the extreme minority is this word ever applied to human beings in the New Testament. The vast majority of usages, when it's not talking about the Holy Spirit, the vast majority of usages of this word are referencing spirit beings like angels, okay? Spirit beings, angels, not like angels, angels, whether good angels or fallen angels. Even outside of the Bible, when you look at the usage, uh, the non-biblical usage in the Greek language, the majority, vast majority of usages are in reference to spirit beings, not to humans. It's, so it's not frequently that the word for spirit is applied to human beings. Secondly, um, the Colossians 2.15 event, do you remember what that said that we were just over there a minute ago? What did Christ do? Yeah, so he disarmed rulers and authorities and made a public display of them. I think that fits with this, his proclaiming to them, making a public display of them, uh, putting them to open shame, right? I think that idea flows um, with this passage. I also see, turn over to 2 Peter, just a page or two over, 2 Peter chapter 2, and look with me at verses 4 and 5. 2 Peter 2, starting at verse 4. And follow Peter's line of thought here. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then he goes on. So look at those first two verses, verses 4 and 5 of 2 Peter 2. You've got Peter talking about God's judgment against different groups of people. And he goes right from angels into how Noah was saved with seven others. I see a parallel to our passage where he's talking about spirits in prison having Christ proclaim triumph to them before going right into Noah being saved with seven other people. I see there a parallel there. Is that an open and shut case? Well, absolutely not, but it's the same author making the same line of reasoning. And I'll read to you, this is Jude 6, I'll just read it to you. In Jude 6, it says, Angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So both in Jude 6 and in 2 Peter 2, you have this idea of angels, fallen angels being in prison. 2 Peter 2 says they were in a, a pits of darkness. And then in Jude 6, it says they're in chains. So there's a prison theme that also flows across different texts as well. And um, let's see, the other note I wrote, what did I mean by this? I'm getting old. Uh, This is happening to me more and more that I I can't just write a little note anymore. (laughs) Oh, it only goes downhill from here, doesn't it? Uh, Let's see, language of currency. I must have just been talking about what I just said about the prisons. How It seems like there's language of the, when you think about the current state of fallen angels, there is this idea that even though they, are, they have a measure of freedom where they influence people, obviously, they can possess certain people, yet they're also in chains. Okay. Now, can we explain what that means? No, we can't, but uh, we have that going on. Melissa. Melissa. 
Yeah, which has always been the case. I mean, you go back to Job, and Satan could only do what he did because God allowed him. So, uh, but perhaps, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to think through all that, isn't it? (laughs) it, We really get into the realm of speculation there. So, uh, I do want to answer before we before I open it up to more thoughts and questions. Um, where do the days of Noah fit into all this? Because see, in verse 20, he does go right into the spirits who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. I remember my ninth grade art teacher, uh, Mr. Mercer, He's an interesting guy. Uh, one time he opened the class. This is before I was a Christian. I was 15. I just remember he opened the class and he said, uh, how much is a few? And we were all like, uh, three, two to four, I don't know. He's, though the Bible says it's eight. Okay. Oh, that's where he gets it. Uh, so take that for what it is. If you want to quiz somebody and make people feel awkward, uh, ask them how much a few is and tell them that the Bible says it's eight. Uh, so where do the, how do the days of Noah fit into all this? If we don't believe, uh, and I'm not projecting my view onto you, but uh, if I don't believe, I'll just say that, that uh, Peter's saying that the Spirit of Christ was in Noah preaching, then why does Peter bring up Noah then? Uh, he could have been, when we think of who Jesus was making proclamation to, if you take the view that he's uh, proclaiming to people, he could have been making proclamation to those who died in the flood. The sinners who died in their sins, who died in the flood, perhaps Jesus went and made proclamation to them specifically. If he's speaking to angels, he could be referencing angels who disobeyed before the flood specifically. We know that the state of the world was like what right before the flood? Yeah, it was the worst. The worst, right? Uh, the thoughts and intentions of man were only evil continually, is what it says, right? And there, of course, was demonic activity happening on the face of the earth. And so perhaps uh, angels who were involved, fallen angels who were involved in that activity specifically were having uh, Jesus proclaim His triumph to them. I, I have a hard time with that. I don't know what, how Noah fits into this because it does say, when the patience of God, so it's giving us a, a time indicator, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So is that time indicator about when, referring to when Jesus made proclamation? I don't think it is. Is it talking about when the disobedience happened? That's what I'm left with. So how does that work? Don't know. Don't exactly know. Okay. Um, nah, I'll just pause there and see thoughts or questions before I do say anything else. Jerry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think there could be a lot to that, and it could be that he was preaching to those—I mean, to those specific people who were then in in Hades—and somehow he went and made proclamation of his triumph to them. I, I don't know. It's a tough one. It's a real tough one. Did any of you have any preconceived interpretations about this verse before you came in tonight? I did, and then my view changed after I studied it. I, yeah, I was, yeah. So, now I'm more confused than I was before. I, I, was, I was very settled in my ignorance. <laughs> no, Jim, go ahead. I heard one other explanation. I don't know if it's a good one. 
the substance of their faith. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I kind of had that idea in my mind. That was close to what I, what I thought. But then as you look at it, the people he was speaking to were clearly disobedient people, not faithful people, if it is people even. These are, yeah, but they, these are labeled as disobedient. They're not labeled as saints in any way. They're not labeled as believers. They are spirits in prison who were disobedient. So that makes it challenging. Yes, sir. Right. Hmm. You can't ask me impossible questions, Jim. How can I answer that one? I did? I don't either. That's scary. Thanks for not recording it. Let's see. It's Luke 8 is one of the instances. I had to use my concordance. I had to cheat on that one. Luke 8, where it says, uh, let's see. Uh, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So, okay, so there's that. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank to the lake and was drowned. Uh, that's... I don't think we can settle on anything solid. Now, there is a great book. The book that I, um, the standard book that I go to for angels and demons is a book called Angels, Elect, and Evil by Fred Dickison. Uh, it's a good book uh, that walks through a systematic theology from what we have in Scripture of angels. Now, at first we think, well, there's not a lot. But when you take Old and New Testament together, there's quite a bit on now, do we have all the answers to all the questions we could come up with out of that? No. But we do have a lot of information. And uh, Dickinson, C. Um, Fred Dickinson, Angels, Elect, and Evil. Yeah, the, the name of the book is just called Angels, Elect, and Evil. But that's a good book. That's the book I used in Bible college in my angelology class, and it's been a good one. Melissa. Yep. So, like, Peter is looking forward to the final judgment of demons, maybe? Oh. I agree. I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you mean they were judged by... Like, through the flood they were judged? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would say that, because Satan and the demons had fallen, of course, well before that. Yeah. But there was, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to, we should both stop talking before we out ourselves as 
crazy heretic people or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Tough one. Now, here's a, here's a challenge to, okay, if we're going to hold that this is uh, something that Jesus did after he died, there are, there's at least one challenge to that that's difficult. Um, well, two. So one is, um, wouldn't it be premature for Christ to proclaim his triumph before his resurrection and before his ascension? So that's, a, that's something to wrestle with. Mandy says no. All right, that's good, <laughs> I guess. But why do you say no? Yeah. Yeah, but it hadn't happened. So I'm just throwing it out there as a challenge to wrestle with. Not saying that I, you know, changes my view. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, another aspect is the going aspect where it says that he went or... Second, no, third question about where are they located. Uh, that is a really tough one. You know, I kind of punted on that by saying the realm of Hades, whatever that means. I don't know what it means. I just said it. But uh, what, what does that mean that he went somewhere? Because you think about, again, demons and angelic beings, they're not physically, geographically stuck anywhere. Uh, whereas humans who have died, their souls are continuing on somewhere. They're not omnipresent and they're not able just to go wherever, right? So that doesn't make any sense. So um, that's another tough one that you have to wrestle with about where he went. So anyway, my job was just to get you more confused and send you home with questions you can think about as you try to fall asleep tonight. But anyway, not an easy passage. And it doesn't get any easier next week. Uh, So study ahead, work through that, and see if you can come with some thoughts on that. Okay? (laughs) <laughs> Any other thoughts or questions? Joseph. The rest of chapter 3. Corresponding to that or this, what does it say? Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. Isn't it funny that Peter wrote, that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand? <laughs> like, wait a second, Peter, have you read what you wrote? <laughs> but, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, hmm. I've written stuff like that before. No one understood it. Like, it was right there. How did you not see it? But not inspired, like Peter. All right, well, let me close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we do thank you for the ultimate message of this passage that you have triumphed, that because of your victory over the grave, because of your victory over sin, there is a message to proclaim. We can join in with Christ in proclaiming that He is King, that He has sealed the victory, that we have eternal life in what He has done for us, the just for the unjust. He died once for all to take away our sin, and we are so thankful. This is our salvation, that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, that He accomplished what He set out to do in offering us redemption. Lord, we thank You for the gift of salvation in Christ, and we ask that You would strengthen us in our spirit and in our thinking, that we would go about this life with sound judgment, that we would honor You 
rightly in the way that we live, and that we would seek to lift Christ up in our hearts, setting Him apart as Lord in each and everything that we do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you.